morning. Hope you're doing well. Uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up there. Just a couple of things to let you know um, while we are flipping there. Number one is uh, you only have a couple more weeks on that, that uh, video right there. We were going to make a new one, but we were right there at the end, and we decided just to keep that video. So just a couple more weeks that you get to hear Jordan say, soul by soul. Um, so uh, that's going to be awesome. Just for a few more weeks, we could enjoy that. The second thing is, I have bent my iPad. If you look at it, it's kind of like a, a U. Uh, I'm not really sure how, but now my screen feels like I'm touching it, and I'm, I'm not, so it just does stuff. So if you see me like fidgeting with my iPad, it's because it thinks I'm like telling it to do something. And so just disregard me fidgeting with my iPad. I'm not like playing a game also while I'm talking to y'all or something. I'm just trying to make it like keep my sermon up. So anyway, um, those are kind of the two big ideas I want you to know about. Uh, last thing is um, we had a baby dedication first service. So that means uh, whenever we have baby dedication with multiple elements in the service, I have to reduce my sermon length. So um, usually for t- Acts 27, because it's kind of one big idea, I would have just headlong steam rolled through this entire chapter and we would have spent the, in, the whole day in one, in one chapter. However, um, because of all that, I have shortened the, the, the length of the sermon. So what's normally, uh, what would be you know, my normal 50, it's, it's going to be shorter. It's probably just going to be 30 today. For you that don't think 30 is short, well, you know, that is for me. So <laughs> uh, we're actually just going to do about half the chapter. So there's really three sermon points as we're going through chapter 27. And I'm going to do the first sermon point and really just half of the second. And next week I'll pick up in the middle of a sermon of point number two and keep going. Because in the middle, there's a nice little conclusion spot that, that works out. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 27 starting in verse 1 today. Um, and we will go through today verse 27. Verse 27, we'll, I'm sorry, 26, we'll stop at verse 26. So uh, if you're able, uh, whenever we read the word together, we stand. So if you're able, I'd love for you to stand uh, and read with us. And if you can't, that's fine. Uh, and at the end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And we'll all respond by saying, thanks be to God. Of course, signifying that we're thankful to God, that he would give us his word. But also uh, signifying that the things that the Holy Spirit teaches us this morning, we want to obey. We want to say yes to. So starting at chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which is about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, when the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along, with it, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near, which is near the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because of even the fast was already over. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, 
not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. The centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner's ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, the harbor of Crete, facing both the southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed the anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon... A tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught, it could not face the wind. We gave way to it and we were driven along. Under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on, uh, on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. And we do pray as we look at this particular text this morning, um, filled with Lots of cities and places that we've perhaps never heard of and lots of language of sailing that we perhaps may be unfamiliar with that uh, those things will, will not uh, deter us, that we'll still be able to see the big picture in this text, which is that you are good, that you accomplish your purposes, and therefore you can be trusted and we should obey you. God, I pray for your help this morning as we look into your text and we see your sovereign hand in the midst of a storm, metaphorically for us and uh, physically for Paul, and that in the middle of that we see how good you are and that you can be trusted. And Lord, I I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you that you would save them this morning, that they would see the goodness of Christ, they would understand that the biggest storm in their life, their sin problem, has been taken care of Jesus. And so since that's the case, we can trust him And these storms, though they may seem acutely large to us at this moment, they're not as large as our sin problem. And you have taken care of that. Therefore, you take care of us in the midst of all of our trials that we have in our life. So, Lord, be with us now, and I pray that you help us uh, see your goodness in the text. We pray this in in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I don't know if you've ever had any rough trips or rough traveling, but maybe you've been on a trip where... Everything goes wrong. You, you go to a, uh, the airport and they lose your baggage and you're delayed and you get there. So I had somebody set up a, a flight for me once when I was working for CSU. I was supposed to arrive at noon, but she got her 12 a.m. and 12 p.m. mixed up. And so she arrived me at 12 a.m. in the morning. Uh, and I was supposed to have a, a rental car waiting for me, but they weren't open and they didn't open until 8 a.m. And I didn't want to sit in the airport, so I had to catch a ride with a complete stranger. Up, I was up in uh, Maryland, and so um, I had to catch a, no, Connecticut. I had to catch a ride with a complete stranger uh, some 40 minutes away, and that was, you know, good. 
uh, that I lived, but scary at, at the same time that they actually did that. And then eventually we couldn't find the hotel because I'd never been there. And we didn't have maps because this was, you know, back in the Stone Ages when I didn't even have a phone uh, or anything like that. And she said, I'm just, they said, I'm just going to drop you off here. And I was like, man, I hope the hotel's near because it's supposed to be around here. And I walked around a corner and there it was, right? So all the worst things that can happen. Or, you know, you're driving and you're going somewhere and you don't have money and you're your car tires breaks out or your brakes give out and what should have taken three hours takes 17 hours because of rain and storms, whatever, right? All the possible things that could go wrong, go wrong. That's what's happening here in Paul, with Paul. What should be at, 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 a, at a good pace, a, a five-week trip, turns out to be a four-month trip. Three ships later, uh, we'll see at the end that he finally makes it to Rome from where he is. So it's a, it's a difficult unexpected, problem-filled trip, but all throughout it, what we're going to see over and over, which I handed to in the prayer, is this subtle refrain that will repeat itself all throughout chapter 27, which is, God is good, and God will accomplish his purposes, and so you can trust him, and you should obey him. In the midst of uh, your sanctification, in the midst of fulfilling the Great Commission, and there's difficulty, and you're, you're dealing with your sin, and all of a sudden something becomes uh, aware to you, or uh, in the midst of trying to fulfill the mission of God, and there seems to be opposition, uh, and, and you can't seem to make it through what would be the storm of making it through these things, the subtle refrain over and over that we see in this is that God will accomplish his purposes, and he is good and he's trustworthy, so you can obey him. Now, what we're going to see here for Paul is a, a long, difficult trip. And as we were reading it, you probably saw several cities that you've never heard of. And so I wanted to make sure that we could get even just some kind of gist of idea of what's going on. So I got myself another map. So I'm super excited about it. So uh, let's go ahead and put up the map. Uh, and you can see what's going on here. So we, we've talked about this map several times where Paul would start his missionary journeys here in Jerusalem. And then the other couple, he would go up to Antioch and that would be his home base. And he would travel around in this area fulfilling his missionary journeys. And as he came back to Jerusalem from the third missionary journey uh, is whenever he was arrested. And he spent some time in Jerusalem and then he went up to Caesarea here. He was on trial there. He was kind of on house arrest for two years. And now he's starting this some people call it the fourth missionary journey. It's not really a fourth missionary journey when it's by force by the Roman government. Uh, and so he's going to go all the way up and up to there. Now, we, when we're reading, we're seeing that he's going to basically get kind of to around here. Uh, and then that's when the, the storm hits and he you know, pulls this Gilligan Island where they're, they're kind of far off. But there's one little place here where we see Fair Havens. It's where they're in Fair Havens and they're trying to decide, should we stay in Fair Havens? Should we, should we go ahead and just winter here? And you'll hear a little thing that says Cauda, C-A-U-D-A. And they're, they're, they're near it. It's below Phoenix right here. What they're trying to do is get to Phoenix just some 40 miles away for the winter because it's a much better place to winter than Fair Havens. And whenever they get right under Cauda, that's when the tempestuous wind hits and they get all the way out here, and they are out there for some 14 days. They never do make it to Phoenix. But you can see they're going to make it to Sidon, and they're going to make it to Myra. That's when they change ships because they had been on some kind of little coastal vessel because it's close to the coast. But here when they get out into the open sea of the Mediterranean and even the Adriatic, they need a larger ship, so they make a ship change. And, of course, when they run aground in Malta, that ship's done. They have to get another, have to get another ship to finally get out there. So three, three ships Four months, they finally make it. And we're going to look at just what would be kind of the, the first half-ish of the story today. So you'll be able to see 
the cities that, as we're going through there. Um, now, when we're going through this particular chapter 27, uh, the outline of it isn't normal like most outlines that I try to give where there's a, a clear kind of structure. Uh, it, because Luke is really just, in chapter 27, getting us to Rome, but still outlining what's going on. So what I have in my outline is just kind of three big kind of parts of the narrative of what's going on. And the first one you can see here is, number one, is the sea and the warning. The sea and the warning. So the, we, I'm going to talk about the sea and, and the Jewish beliefs about the sea. And we finish with the warning, which is in chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 9 and 10 there where Paul gives a warning. And that's kind of the, the first little section. And then we'll go into the next section, uh, which will be uh, some more information. So, uh, you can go ahead and keep the map up after y'all write that down. We can go ahead and keep the map up through this because there's lots of cities and it's perhaps not the easiest to, to follow along without being able to see because, you know, we don't know all these cities. So uh, in verse 1, you can see, And when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, this man Julius will prove to be uh, a pretty nice guy to Paul and help him in a lot of ways. We'll see in, here in just a second where he lets him visit his friends. He doesn't listen to him at one particular point in the voyage uh, when Paul gives the warning. But then as you keep going throughout the rest of chapter 27, Paul is is perceived by this man Julius to be somebody to listen to. Julius said, we should listen to this guy, Paul. He's older, he's experienced, he's going to give advice. He was right before. And so he, he makes concessions and listens to Paul and does things for Paul. Uh, that Usually, because Paul's a prisoner. Why, why do you listen to a prisoner? Uh, but Julius sees the, the, the wisdom of Paul and, and, and gives Paul uh, some, some, some credence to some of the things that he's saying. So when we see that... Uh, Julius is going to be nice. The other thing I want you to notice in verse 1, it says, When it was decided that we, we, now this is first person plural, which means uh, Luke is likely on this ship with Paul the entire way. So we've got Luke, and we also see that he's got a friend, the end of verse 2, Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Uh, Whenever you finally get to Rome, Paul writes the letter to the Colossians, and in chapter 4, verse 10, he makes note of Aristarchus, one of the fellow co-workers with him. So likely Aristarchus and Luke made this voyage with Paul all the way there through this horrific time. There's uh, verse 37 in this chapter tells us there's about 276 people total on this boat. So there's a lot of people, but he has these two. Now, Aristarchus and Luke would have been viewed by most to be kind of Paul's servants. Paul was a Roman citizen, and they were looking to Paul for advice and all this kind of, this thing's driving me crazy. I got to try to fix this. They're looking to Paul to, uh, to help him and give him uh, some, some help and things like that. So they would have probably viewed Paul as, as like the, the master of these Aristarchus and Luke, but Paul wouldn't have viewed that way. They would have just, Paul would have said, Aristarchus and Luke are my fellow missionaries. He wouldn't have thought of them, obviously, as, as uh, his servants. Now, um, whenever we set sail into the sea, N.T. Wright helps us understand something about Jewish attitudes towards the sea. He says that the Israelites were not a seafaring people. I know we have stories of them kind of being seafaring people from Jonah to Noah, etc. But uh, although I guess Noah wasn't technically a, a, an Israelite, but um, they were not a seafaring people. The Israelites were happy to leave the seafaring part to all the other people, the, the Greeks, etc. For them, the sea was a monster, is what N.T. Wright says. So they weren't, they didn't like it, and it and it scared them greatly. So. A voyage of this nature across a major sea for most Israelites is not something that they, they looked on with, you know, with, with great love for. They, and so for Paul and, and, and perhaps the rest of the Israelites, this, this voyage is not going to be 
a great thing. So we should start off knowing what their view of it is. So uh, the, the great trust that Paul would have to have, even entering into this particular voyage, it would, be, would be very high. So we see they're going into and they're barking on a ship and they're about to set sail these ports and they go and they're accompanied by Aristarchus. And then we see in verse 3, the next day they put in at Sidon. Julius right here uh, treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go with his friends. So they, they finally leave Caesarea and they go to Sidon. Now I mentioned Paul went in all these lands in his missionary journeys and Surely he had, he had been to Sidon before, and as he was in Sidon, he had made plenty of friends. And as he comes to Sidon, he realizes that he's on his way to Rome. He knows he's going on his way to Rome, likely never to return. He wants to, as he said uh, in Rome, to go to Spain. He wants to just keep going west. So when he pulls in here into uh, this particular port, when he goes into Sidon, Julius treated Paul kindly, which he didn't have to. And gave him lead to go to his friends and be cared for. So uh, as he's pulling in and he's going to see his friends, his friends treat Paul kindly. They're going to give him some provisions for the trip. They're, it's not like a snack machine on the, on the ship where he can just buy himself some Reese's Cups anytime he wants. So they're going to give him stuff. They're going to give him niceties, etc. But also, as we're looking at this, we can, we, we want, I want to understand something kind of larger about the book of Acts. Which Acts kind of has this big theme over and over that um, Christian friendship is a, a theme that's uh, talked about throughout the book of Acts. And here it is again. When, when Paul goes in and sees these people in Sidon, he knows he's never going to see them again. He, he knows that he's going to Rome and, and possibly, if it's his will, west more. Never to see these people again. They don't have FaceTime. So there's literally like never see them again ever. And so he, he has these moments with these particular people over and over. And we've already seen some others where uh, he has to say goodbye, not just for a short time, but in this life forever. He has to say goodbye forever. And so as Christian friendship is a theme throughout the book of Acts, I just want to remind us um, all that Christian friendship that we have with, uh, with others is a great gift from God. And, it, and it's rooted in our friendship with, with Jesus because Jesus calls us friend because of the gospel. When we were once enemies and because he was willing to go die for us on the cross, now we put our faith and we are now called his friend. All of our sins are forgiven and we are now friends with God. He calls us friend. That extends out now and the Lord gives us Christian friendships. Unlike any other friendships that that non-Christians can make, our friendships, although we will never see them again sometimes here, doesn't mean we'll never see them again. We will because, as Michael W. Smith tells us, friends are friends forever when the Lord's the Lord of them. And a friend will not say never when the welcome will not end. Um, though it's hard to let you go in the Father's hands, I know a lifetime's not too long to live as friends. Maybe I'm too old for most of y'all to, uh, to, but maybe some of you know it. Oh, MWS told us that back in the 80s or whatever it was. Um, but I think he's in a lot of, a lot of senses, right? That's, that's a true thing, which is um, even just last night, I have this call all the time from, as a pastor. God has given us an opportunity for a new job or to get closer to our family, to go to, to a different school, and, and we're leaving and we're moving to another city. And it could mean a lot of times that I might not ever see my friends again physically. Like we have the luxury of FaceTime where I can FaceTime them and we can text, etc. But it hurts whenever they leave uh, and whenever they go uh, and move to other cities. And I have this call several times, all the time. Um, But the good news is, as a Christian friend, is that though I might not see you here, one day we'll all be together with Jesus. And so that's really good news for those who who have maybe had several friends over the last years or whatever, and all of a sudden... The idea of reconnecting into a brand new person again and going through all of the things to where you finally know them because you've done that several times and they leave and you're like, that's so much work. Um, It's always worth it. It really is because every time you do that, 
all the people that you continually keep doing that with, even though they, might, they also might move, you'll be with them all one day in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And that's good news. And so uh, Paul here does that with his Christian friends, um, and he, he sees it as valuable to continually do that. Now, there's going to be a little phrase here. My iPad is insane right now. Stop. It's like zooming in on this one word, and I just see the word letter. Anyway, um, so here we see in verse 4, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed. You see this under the lee of Cyprus. And so what that just means is uh, several times whenever they're going under, I know that's kind of over, but the winds were coming this way. Basically what that means is whenever they're going behind little, behind little uh, islands, that's a sailing term, under the lee means we're going we're gonna to go beside it so that the prevailing winds that are coming from that won't blow us. So we're going under the lee of this, of this little island, and it helps us be able to sail. It's just a term. It's, it's used quite often uh, throughout this, but it basically means you're using the land beside you from an island as a, as a shield from massive winds so that you can, you can keep going. So they say this. They sailed under the lee of Cyprus, and they sailed across the open sea, and they came to Cilicia, and we came to Myra, and there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria. Uh, going to Italy. So here's a ship change. This is ship number two. They had, like I said, been in a little coastal vessel that certainly couldn't make it to Rome, but they need to get something bigger, and they found it, and they, they got them. This is a, actually a grain ship, which we'll see later because they're dumping the grain during the storm. Uh, but they're going to make a little ship change there in Myra and keep going. So uh, as we keep going here, it says, we sell, sell for a number of days. We arrived difficulty in Sinidius when the wind didn't allow us to go further, etc. Um, finally, we get to Fair Havens, which sounds great. Fair Havens, that's a great place to stay, but they didn't like Fair Havens. They wanted to go to Phoenix. And as I said, it's just a short 40 miles there. And they're like, to winter in uh, Phoenix would be much better. Now, we know that that's going on because it said, since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. The fast is if you get a little two there, you look at the bottom, it says the Day of Atonement. And this particular year, which is year 8059, that day is on October 5th. It, it, it varies calendar, calendar, according to what's going on, but we know it's October 5th. And we all know October means it's starting to get cold. So very few people would go out on in the Mediterranean between October into November because of the, the big winds that would happen, the major storms. And nobody from November to you know, February would go out because of just, it's just freezing now. Uh, and they're going to try to make this. And so Paul, who had logged some 3,500 miles in all of his time, probably 3,500, one commentator had added it all up and figured out that Paul had logged at least 3,500 miles on the Mediterranean, which means he probably had more seafaring experience than even the sea captains and, and, and the, and the uh, guys that were you know, in charge of the ship. So he has a lot of experience, but to them, he's just a prisoner. He says, with this major warning, you need to listen. Paul is somebody they should have listened to. He says in verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo, not only on the ship, but more importantly, our lives. People will die. And so you shouldn't do this. Don't do this. I know it's just a short 40 miles to Phoenix, and that seems better, but don't do this. Instead, we'll just stay here and winter here. We can see they don't pay attention to him. Verse 11, Centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that they could somehow just reach Phoenix. As I said, just some short 40 miles, right? You're thinking, we can make it. Uh, the harbor of Crete, both facing northwest, southwest, to spend the winter there. Um, and so as we're seeing uh, the close of this one little section, um, N.T. Wright says one other comment about this, this whole section. 
uh, t- kind of taking a larger step back and using the metaphor of the storms and how God, in, in the face of, of opposition that comes from dark forces, that comes from Satan, and in the midst of the storm, God still is moving. He says this, um, uh, and, and I should say this, I, I forgot to say this first service, but I meant to. So we've said several times as we're going through the book of Acts that uh, Luke is, in a lot of ways, trying to make the Luke narrative and the Acts narrative similar uh, in, their, in their fashion, in that uh, in the same way Jesus was on trial and, and, and treated unfairly, and, and Paul was too, he's not saying that, that Paul's the new Jesus, and that's not what all what he's saying, but in, as a narrative, narrative form, he's, he's, in a, a lot of ways, trying to make their two lives be similar, in that, obviously, from Paul's life, we look back to, to Luke, and Jesus is still the hero. But if you, if you read the book of Luke and the book of Acts, there's certainly no doubt in the narrative structure he's trying to do that. Well, when you get to the end of the trials in Jesus' life, you have the crucifixion, right? And so when you're getting to the end of Acts through the, through the trials, the, the, the kind of the parallel for Christ's crucifixion is Paul's boat ride in Acts 27. Because after that, you've got the resurrection of Jesus where he's going and proclaiming the kingdom for another 40 days. And you have Paul in Acts 28 where he gets to Rome and he proclaims the kingdom. So in a lot of ways, they're paralleling each other. So Paul's Acts 27 uh, shipwreck or ship is a narrative parallel of the cross. So we can see the peril of Acts 27 that Luke's trying to to paint for us because he almost equates it to the cross of Jesus. Now, this isn't, you know, this is not, in, in a lot of ways, it's not the cross, right? We know that. But nevertheless, what he's trying to do is that. He's trying to help us. So N.T. Wright writes, Luke is asking us to watch this story unfold, to see the narrative, as it were, superimposed on the story of the cross. Because in a lot of ways, he's trying to make Luke and Acts be the same. Not just as another example of suffering and vindication, but as a sign of the way the unique event of Jesus' death is implemented in the mission of the church to the world, uh, the world as it yearns for its new creation. Now, that's a lot of words, but let me explain what I think he's, what he's saying here is. The dark forces of the sea are in opposition to Paul and the spread of the gospel. But Paul has been promised in Acts 23, verse 11, when Jesus visits him in the prison, you're going to preach the gospel in Rome. So even though there's, there's opposition here against Paul and what would be the proclamation of the gospel, Paul's going to arrive at Rome. And so nonetheless, uh, even though there's these wonderings of, of Paul, will I get there? There's difficulty, there's trials. Paul's going to get to Rome. There's no doubt about it. Thus, the mission of the church will be pushed forward. And so for us, it's the same. Dark forces will, will oppose us, wanting to... Uh, Live as Christ would have us and be, uh, be obedient to what would be the mission of the church, the proclamation of the gospel all over the world. And even though that's the case, there's difficulties and trials that we'll go through. God's going to use those difficulties and trials to do two things. One, of course, to sanctify us through those things, to help us understand we need to trust in God more through the midst of those things, but also um, to get the gospel to people that don't know it. And in the end, we will arrive one day as Paul arrives into Rome, the promised place he's been going, we will also arrive into the new creation one day to be with Christ. And so he's wanting us to see this kind of big picture thing here that in a lot of ways, just like he's going through a trial, our lives will have that as well. And we can trust God to take us through. And he has promised us that he will bring us one day into the new kingdom. And therefore, this subtle refrain comes up here again, which is, God is good. 
and God will accomplish his purposes in us. And so since he is good, we should obey him and we should trust him with the things that are going on in our life. We can, we can trust him. Now, as we get here to number two, you can go ahead and put up number two. Uh, we get to this next session, which is the storm and the angel. The storm and the angel. The storm is what we know, and this angel is the visit from uh, the angel to Paul, which proves to be quite encouraging. The storm and the angel. So, verse 13. They're setting out from Fair Havens. Just this 40 little trek. We're going to make it to Phoenix. We're going to win her. You're not going to win her. It says this. Uh, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. Let's set up the map. And so, they're, they're setting out here. Uh, from Fair Havens, and they're thinking that they're going to make it. And then right around here, I mean, obviously this is just a guesswork on the, on the red line, but right around here before they get to Phoenix, all of a sudden we see here in verse, I think it's 14. Yeah, verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster. Tempestuous in the Greek is typhonikos. That's where we get the word typhoon. So this means a hurricane, typhoon-type wind blows. Everybody knows this, even if you don't sail at all. You, if you're in a sailboat and a hurricane's hitting the shore, you're, you're not going to win. There's like, I got this. I got a hurricane that I can do my sailing. No, you're not. You're going to go wherever that hurricane wants you to go. And so a tempestuous, a typhonicos, a, a hurricane slash typhoon type wind blows them here. And no matter what, they can wish all they want to get to Phoenix. They're not going to. Instead, they're going to have themselves a Gilligan Island session here where they have no clue where they are. They don't know where they are, uh, and they get to the point of absolute and utter despair here. Um, so it says, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck them from the land, and when the ship was caught, it could not face the wind. So they just, since they couldn't face it, they just gave way to it, and they were driven along, running under, uh, under the lee of a small land called Cauda. Uh, you see Phoenix, it's not on the map, but sa- straight south of Phoenix, there's a tiny little island called Cauda. Uh, that's where they knew that they were there, but all of a sudden, they couldn't, they got the little ship that was attached to the big ship secured. They hoisted it up and they undergird the ship. You can see here five different kind of precautionary measures they're doing to try to save their ship uh, and save the crew. They're doing these things. And you can see again um, that they lowered the gear in verse 19. They're, they're, the violently storm-tossed, they were, so we can get a big description now of how awful it was. They were violently storm-tossed. The next day they jettisoned the cargo. They throw all the grain out. Uh, just trying to, that's the first thing they always did in these ships back then, to save people, throw everything out. And then it says they, sh- they threw the ship's tackle overboard as well with their own hands. And look at this. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. That means, uh, and you can see, because uh, no small tempest lay on us. This is a massive storm. Now, when you say many days, you're like, I wonder how far that was. Well, verse 18 tells us third day. And if you go down to, not the band, and then when you go down to verse 27, it says 14th night. Well, 14 minus 3 is 11. So that's pretty simple math, right? So when we go back up to verse 20, neither sun nor nor stars appeared for 11 days. This is an 11-day massive storm where it's so dark, you don't know whether it's light and you don't know whether it's dark. It's an 11-day storm that you've been in, total of 14, where it's so awful. You're so seasick you can't eat. We, we see that no one eats because when you get to verse 33, Paul starts telling everybody it's been 14 days and nobody's eating. It's time to eat. So they're, they're so seasick that they're throwing up. They're also quite nervous. They probably just can't eat anyway. They don't eat for 14 days. 
just imagine where you get yourself to the absolute point. They're Gilligan Island. They have no clue where they are. I just want us to feel like how despairing they were because when we read the second part of verse 20, we need to get just how like no hope they were. Read the second half of verse 20. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They brought themselves after this 11-day storm and total of 14 where they're totally hungry. They're so seasick they can't eat. They had all. There's 276 people, according to verse 37 on here. All 276 besides Paul had just said, we're all going to die We've all just decided we're going to die. We've given ourselves up to die. All hope is lost, and we're fine with it. Imagine being at this particular point. Now, metaphorically, in our situations, we can be there too. All hope is lost in this storm that I'm in right now. There's literally no way out of this, whether it be uh, trouble at home or trouble at the job or trouble with your children or trouble with your parents or whatever. You can all get to this point of all hope is gone. Literally no hope whatsoever. And that's why this Stepping up of Paul in verse 21 is just a thunderstorm of encouragement. No pun intended there. Thunderstorm of encouragement to where they're in absolute, I mean, the bottom of the valley in despair. And Paul comes in and says, hey, I've got something to tell you. And you need to hear this. This is going to be quite encouraging. And so they take all these precautionary measures. They're 11 days of no sun or stars. I can't even imagine being in a storm for 11 days where it's dark for 11 days and it's just that stormy to where you're just like, I'm just gonna die and I don't care anymore. Perhaps metaphorically you've been there. Verse 21, Paul steps up. Now at first read, it sounds like Paul's that guy, you know? Like the guy, you should have listened to me the whole time guy. Like you can read it in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, that's 14 days, Paul stood up and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this. Thanks, Paul. You imagine how that landed. We know that one now, Paul. Thanks for bringing that back to us. Now, remember, in verse 9 and 10, he told him not to do this, right? Don't do this because the ship, the cargo, and lives will be lost. Now, at first read, it sounds like Paul is just trying to rub it in their face. And I thought that at first, but some commentators persuaded me not. I think that that's not the case. Instead, I think that in this particular moment where everybody was in despair, Paul's a prisoner in the ship, and he's not, a, he's not a highly looked upon person, and he's trying to stand up and gain some footing to say, the next things I'm going to say in verses 22 and following, you should listen to. And so he brings that up just by saying, I was right, so I should be listened to. Not rub it in your face, but I have some other things I want to say that are going to be massively encouraging. So listen to what I'm going to say. And so he, he, he um, builds a foundation immediately in one sentence, I should be listened to with verse 21. I don't, think, I don't think he's just trying to be that guy. So verse 22 is where we get into these, uh, these three awesome points of encouragement. Um, and what we see here, um, having being Paul, the most sea, experienced sea traveler here, logging some 3,500 miles on the sea, he steps forward out of 276 people as the leader. He does this because he has this unbelievable, strong faith in Jesus, and he's going to help them understand the providence of God in his own life. And so he helps them see the providence of God in his own life. He's going to help them see that the Lord keeps his promises and that they're going to get to Rome. And there's, here's the subtle refrain again that God is good and that God is trustworthy and he's going to accomplish his purposes. And even if you're not a believer, you can listen to Paul and you can trust. You can trust. So look at verse 22, and we're going to see the three encouragements that Paul gives. Yet now I urge you, this is, this is a remarkable language. Yet now I urge you to take heart. 
He literally uses the phrase, take heart. You can see it again in verse 25. He says it again. So, take heart. Now, that's not just happenstance. This is not just coincidence. Look with me at chapter 23, verse 11. When Paul was in the valley, when Paul was finally trying to go through all the trials, trying to go through all the things, and he needed someone to come and encourage him, he's in the middle of this jail, everything's gone bad, and he just, he thinks it's all over. Jesus Christ himself visits Paul in the jail three, four chapters ago and looks at him and says, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Now, here it's take courage in in ESV, and over here it's take heart. Same words, exact same words. The same words that Paul is told by Jesus, Paul now, in the midst of the trial, is the one to stand in front of these other people and say, take heart, take courage. He looks at them and says, take heart, take courage. So the first encouragement that he gives them are the words of Jesus that he gave to him, which is take heart or keep courage, keep faith in God. He's telling this because he had received it from the angel here and he had actually received it from Jesus. And he's passing on the same encouragement that the Lord is good and faithful and he has always been good and faithful. And in Acts 23, 11, he told me to take heart because you've testified in Jerusalem and Jesus promises him here in verse 11 and you're gonna testify in Rome. And Paul is clinging to like, this storm is not going to kill me because he's already promised me in 2311 I'm going to Rome. So I will not die on this boat because I know I'm going to Rome. He told me to take heart. And so I'm telling you, by word of this angel, which just, he has just told me, and the promise that Jesus himself gave me, we're going to make it to Rome. And so he tells him. Now, the promise was just given to Paul from Jesus in 20, 2311. You're going, you're, going to, you're going to live, you're not going to Rome. Paul extends that and says, uh, you're all going to. So the first encouragement he tells them is to keep courage. Take heart. The second encouragement he gives is not only should you keep heart, you're, <laughs> you're not going to die. That's a pretty big encouragement to know that you're not going to die. Whenever you have reached the utter despair, verse 20, all hope of us being saved was at last abandoned. He tells them in verse 22, uh, there will be no loss of life among you. That's remarkable in the first century with 276 people on board to know that there will be no loss of life. So the second encouragement is there will be no loss of life. Incredible news. Uh, Just the ship, which, you know, whatever, fine with that. For this very night there stood before me an angel, and he's going to ground the reasoning here and letting them know to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. That means you're going to get to Rome. And behold, God has granted to you all those same things. So you can, he says again, you can take heart. For I have faith in this God that it's going to happen. It's been faithful my entire life. And so he's going to be, since I became a Christian, he's going to be faithful to you now. You can trust me. Third piece of encouragement, and just, just put yourself in this situation. You've been on a boat for 14 days, and it hasn't been a, a cruise where you've just been picking out, right? It's been the worst sailing of your whole life. It's been awful. And the only thing you want is to never be on water again, at least for a long time. So the third piece of encouragement Paul tells him is, we get to get off the boat. We're actually going to walk on some dirt, and that's going to be awesome. And he says it there at the very end of 26, but we must run aground on an island. God said, we're going to finally get to walk on some dirt. Now, to run aground for a boat is not a good idea, but the fact that you're running aground means that you're going to get off the boat. That's encouraging. That's encouraging. So the third thing he tells them is, you're going to find land soon. That sounds good to get out of the storm and get on some land. So as we look at this, Paul stands up in the midst of this you know, awful storm, and gives them three pieces of encouragement with Christ's words. So who then can you do this for in your life? 
Who is going through a massive storm right now where you need to come beside them, like Paul, and give great encouragement from God's word? You know the storm in their life. You know the troubles that they're going through. Who can you stand up to and walk beside and be there for them? As we've already hinted on the theme of friendship, be there for them and give them encouragement. Perhaps, they, like I've said, they have family problems or job problems or dad problems or mom problems or kid problems. They've got, there's all kinds of problems they can have in life. And like Jesus encouraged Paul in Acts 23 and then Paul passes it on in Acts 27 to them, Christ has encouraged you. There's no doubt about it if you're a believer in Jesus. Who is it in your life that right now you can also go to and be a great encouragement? I promise you if you think about it for three minutes, you'll think of 20 people. It's, it's just God, if we, we open our eyes, has given us so many people around us that we can come to and like Christ has encouraged us, we can give them encouragement from the Lord's word. Now, I'm going to conclude with this. I'm going to conclude with this. This is what struck me, because I would not be this way. Um, after 14 days of, of being in the worst storm ever, like physically, I would have been one of those other people in verse 20. It's like, <laughs> we're just all going to die. I'm ready for death. And I certainly wouldn't have an ear to be listening for God. But what struck me is, in the midst of this awful storm is, probably the one person at 275 weren't, one person still had an ability after 14 days of, of just terror to still have an ear to be able to listen to the, to the voice of God. That struck me because when I'm in the middle of my trial, it's very difficult for me to remember to listen to God. I, I have the circumstances around me sometimes swallow me to where I have to really, really have other people come and remind me, listen to God here in this. But that's what, that's what strikes me the most is, and we shouldn't lose light, light of this, at the end of this 14 days, no sun, no stars, etc., always dark, lost storm, doesn't know how it's going to end, everything's bad, Paul, in the midst of this massive storm, is still listening to God. God comes to him and form an angel and speaks to him, and it's amazing that Paul stops, isn't freaking out like the rest, I think they, would, they are, and listens and receives comfort from God and is able to pass this on. Can you stop in the middle of your storm, and listen to God. And again, here comes the refrain that we all need to hear in the middle of our trials, that God is good. And you can trust him. And you need to stop, and you need to listen to him because he's good, and you can obey him in the things that he's asking. C.S. Lewis uh, has a quote on how to, he advises us on how to listen to God in the storm. He says this, God walks everywhere incognito. Has this been off the whole time? Okay. That's weird. All right. We'll start over. God walks incognito everywhere. And, and incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor, then, is to remember. It's to attend. In fact, to come awake, still more, to remain awake. Meaning this, and I'll be redundant with the word remember. Remembering that you're not alone and that God never leaves you is very hard to remember. Remembering that you're not alone and that God never leaves you alone can be so hard to remember. And so, like the Apostle Paul in the midst of this storm, he is constantly still, I think, listening for God to be able to receive comfort and pass it to others. 
And therefore, we must remember this practice. We should, pun intended, anchor ourselves to God's presence. Anchor ourselves to God's presence. Not just in the good times, because that's easy. But in the difficult times, when things are not going the way we should have. In the midst of our terrible storms, anchor ourselves to God's presence and be amazed at how he displays himself to you and how he gives you amazing courage to persevere and how you can have amazing faith in him to trust him. And here's why. Here's why. Whatever storm you're going through or about to go through, because that's how life is, which I don't want to downplay those. I know they're serious. Whatever it is, they could be really, really terrible. There's already something greater than that, that's a storm in your life, that Jesus has completely taken care of if you're a believer in Christ. Namely, your sin problem. You can trust him because the worst thing in your life is your sin, and he's already taken care for it at the cross. And if we trust in him, put our faith in him, that right there has been, means we've been forgiven. And so since he's able to be trusted in that, whatever storm you're going through, it could be right under that or it could be lower. You can trust him in those things because he's already taken care of the most important thing in your life, namely your sin problem. So when C.S. Lewis tells us, remembering um, that we need to stay awake, still more attend, come to awake, and still more remain awake, uh, it shouldn't be as arduous of a task as it is sometimes because he's so good. He's already been there for us in the worst things that we can trust him in the middle of the storm. And then again, as I say, Here comes the refrain then, that God is good. He's going to accomplish his tasks, which are good tasks. Therefore, we should obey him and we should trust him in our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for for stories like this where certainly first century cities we've never been to and language about boats maybe we're not familiar with still, without a doubt, shine through your character. Shine through uh, truths about who you are. That you're so good to us. That you love us because you sent us your son. That you've displayed your love to us by sending your son to your enemies and made us your friends by uh, willingly giving your son so that we could be forgiven of our sin. And so since that's the case, God, we can trust you in anything. And not only that, we can be uh, instruments of encouragement to others in the middle of their trials as well. So help us think of other people. Help us be cognizant of the other people around us that need for us to come and encourage them with God's word. And God, encourage them in the gospel. Thank you so much for Christ and the forgiveness we find in him. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to our time where we take up, take the Lord's Supper, and uh, said this multiple times, but the Lord's Supper doesn't save us. Uh, It's a reminder of the fact that we've already been saved. So if you're not a believer in Christ, we would ask that you just observe. Uh, 